The sermon text this morning is from Romans chapter 2, verses 1 through 5. You therefore have no excuse, you who pass judgment on someone else. For at whatever point you judge another, you are condemning yourself, because you who pass judgment do the same things. Now we know that God's judgment against those who do, do such things is based on truth. So when you, a mere human being, pass judgment on them and yet do the same things, do you think you will escape God's judgment? Or do you show contempt for the riches of his kindness, forbearance, and patience, not realizing that God's kindness is intended to lead you to repentance? But because of your stubbornness and your unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath against yourself for the day of God's wrath when his righteous judgment will be revealed. Let me just try to remind you as to where we've been. You know, Paul has introduced himself as a servant, as an apostle. He's set apart for the gospel of God. And uh, he has told us in chapter 1, verse 15, that he's eager to preach this gospel. He's eager to preach the gospel because it's very good news for us. It's good news for all those who believe. It's salvation from God. And he explains in verse 17 how this salvation works. He says that in the gospel, a righteousness is revealed. It's revealed. In other words, that, that in the gospel, we see how a man or a woman can be made right before God. How we can be reconciled to God. And it's through faith in Jesus, his life and his death and his, his resurrection. And the reason it's very good news, of course, is because in verse 18, we see that the wrath of God is also revealed against all ungodliness and wickedness. And, you know, as we talked about that, you know, his invisible attributes, his glorious nature, his eternal power is being revealed, and we rejected him. We suppressed the truth. We were ungrateful to him for his kindness, and we've inverted his creational design. And in replacing God with gods of our own making, we saw the fruit of that last week through just the physical depravity that we've fallen into, treating our bodies with dishonor and all that we spoke about last week, but not just physically, but also mentally. You know, the debasing of our mind. And remember back in, in 28 to 31 about all those, the 21 different vices that we see, the haughtiness, the arrogance, the insolence, the hating of God, the inventing of evil. All these things are not, they're not waiting for God to bring wrath. They're evidence that God has already stepped back. He's already given us over. That's the evidence of his wrath. Now, if you were in this audience, you know, and Paul has been preaching, if this thing was being read, you know, if you were more of a religious sort, more of a moral person, you would be cheering Paul on. That's right, Paul. You, know, you give it to him. You might throw a few amens, may raise your hands, preach it, Paul, park it here. I mean, you may really think he's giving you know, a good word to those who need to hear it. But we see a big shift in chapter 2 because he turns to the righteous and the moralist. And he says, but you are without excuse. This is like, whoa, where'd that come from? You notice the shift because it's a third-person plural in the second half of chapter 1. They knew God, they exchanged, but now Paul shifts to second-person singular. But you, you, oh man, you who judge. And, and, and so this is what theologians call it a diatribe. It's kind of a rhetorical device where um, 
the writer or the speaker is, is kind of having a, a discussion with an imaginary person, oh man. And, and the audience is around there listening, and, and as we're listening to this discussion, Paul's teaching us, he's instructing us. He's warning us about the perils of hypocrisy. He's warning the moralist and the self-righteous about the dangers of God's wrath regarding our own hypocrisy. And so when you look at this text, you might, be, um, you might think it's going in one direction, but, but I think it's going in a different direction in terms of God's judgment. And, and so what Paul's doing here in verse 1, I think he's just going to be exposing self-righteousness. How can we discern the degree to which we are self-righteous before God? And then, and then we're going to see that this self-righteousness is judged by God. There is judgment being stored up, he says, in verses 2 through 4. And then I think in verse 5, we're going to see this kind of, kind of a way out, a way of escape, um, a way that God has prepared for us that we would not come under wrath for self-righteousness. So, so those are kind of the three marks in the sermon. First, the exposing of self-righteousness. Look at me at verse 1. He says, Therefore you have no excuse, every one of you who judges, for in passing judgment on another you condemn yourself, because you, the judge, practice the very same things. Now, just right out of the gate, let's understand he's not condemning all judgment. Let us be the one church in America that has Christians in it that don't say, you're not supposed to judge. He's not condemning all forms of judgment. He's not calling us to set aside our critical faculties. He's not asking us to stop discerning. It should be obvious, you know, Paul would expect us to agree with him, by the way, in the way that he evaluated Gentile culture in the second half of chapter 1. You know, Paul himself says in 1 Corinthians 2.15 that the spiritual man judges all things. The judge. There is a role to judge. Jesus himself said in John 7, 7, 24, he says, don't judge by appearance, but make right judgments. The implication is you, you do judge. That you do have to discern. You do have to evaluate. You have to, you have to separate. You know, what's a wolf? What's sheep? I mean, you have to make these evaluative decisions. Now, in your mind right now, you may be thinking, yeah, Tom, but you haven't mentioned Matthew 7. And Matthew 7 says, judge not, lest you be judged. Well, if you turn there, just read the rest of the paragraph, and, and he'll explain to you how you're to judge. You're to take the, the board out of your eye so as to remove the, the splinter out of the eye of your brother. In other words, he needs that splinter removed. He, needs it, he just needs it removed by someone who has clear sight. So he's not saying don't judge. Absolutely. What he says here is, he says, don't judge in passing judgment. You're condemning yourself because you practice the very same things. So he's saying here, and I don't think he's saying that those who judge you know, are doing the exact same things. I think what he's saying is that, generally speaking, that you don't want to judge a person when you yourself are walking in sin, in unconfessed sin sin. So in other words, you, you're, you're not called to judge people <clears throat> when, you, when you haven't taken your own soul to task. For example, uh, it would be like he's condemning the one who would judge the drunkard while suffering with gluttony. 
or the one who judges homosexual, but he's a voyeur at the gym. Or he judges the murder, and yet he won't deal with the anger and bitterness on his own heart. I think that's what he's going after here. You know, there are certain sins that are private. They're less public. They don't get the headlines that the bigger sins do. He's saying, don't judge when you're walking in these private sins so casually. The haughtiness, the arrogance, the insolence, the malice, the slander. It's less public. It's less known. But it's not less in God's eyes. You know, and Jesus kind of made this principle clear when he spoke in Matthew 5. He says, you've heard it said, don't commit adultery. But I say to you, don't look upon a woman lustfully, otherwise you've already committed adultery. Jesus internalizes these things. So, so the one who is guilty of adultery is easy to pick out of a crowd and judge. But are we not guilty of lust ourselves? You kind of see this played out, I think, when, when those Pharisees and scribes brought the woman caught in adultery to Jesus in John chapter 8. You can imagine the scene. There they are in the city, at least the city gate, presumably. They bring a woman, and they say she's caught in adultery. So she was probably naked. You can imagine the absolute mortification, just the embarrassment. She's brought to Jesus, and they say, teacher, now they're trying to test him, it says. Teacher, what does the law of Moses say we should do in a case like this? And so Jesus doesn't say anything initially. Draws in the ground. Don't know what he was drawing. But he says, well, he among you who is without sin cast the first stone. Now, he's not going to bring judgment to her. He does. He says to her, go and sin no more. Adultery ruins marriages, it ruins families. It's a serious issue that has to be dealt with rightly and legitimately. But he wanted them to see the nature of their own sin before they bring judgment upon somebody else. And that's the softening effect that our judgment would be with mercy when we confess our own sins and we humble ourselves. So what Paul's trying to do is he's trying to take the moralists in the group, the religious in the group, and he's saying, to what degree of self-righteousness does it have a hold of your soul? Now, sometimes it's hard to, to kind of look at our own lives and see the degree to which we are walking in self-righteousness. So because I'm your friend, let me give you some help with that. And let me just, I'll just kind of try a shotgun approach here to help ask you some questions that may uncover the degree to which we may struggle with self-righteousness. For example, the self-righteous person uh, generally fails to see the depth of their own sin. They fail to see the depth of their own sin, the extent of their own sin. Now, what I mean by that is this, that, that we often struggle with God's assessment of sin. You know, it's not hard to convince a person, a religious person in particular, but even a non-Christian, it's not hard to convince them that they're not perfect, that there's not room to grow. Uh, but, But we struggle to see the gravity of the sin as God sees it. We struggle to see the legitimacy of God's divine judgment over sins. In other words, with the murder, the rapist, child abuser, yeah, we can see divine judgment. Most people can, yeah, they ought to be judged. But gossip, maybe a little slander, 
a little bit of lying, a little bit of deceit. Surely that's beneath God to bring the weight of his holiness on such things like that. That would be an evidence of self-righteousness. I think that's why Paul's taking so long to just deal with the nature of sin within the human race. He spends three chapters on this. Why? Because I think we suppress the truth about the nature of our own souls. We don't want to see the sin in our lives because it's just frankly uncomfortable. We don't commit those big sins, and so we don't have that sense of true moral depravity and brokenness and rebellion that exists within people. We almost think God's somehow morally responsible to forgive us whenever we ask. We don't don't see the depth and the nature of our sin as we ought. That can be an indication that we struggle with self-righteousness. Another example would be that self-righteousness is evident in the life of the person that that struggles with a, a continual pattern of imbalance between their public expression of faith and their private expression of faith that the person who struggles with self-righteousness will put a lot more effort into appearing to be holy and religious, but but inwardly and privately, the same attention and effort is not given. It reminded me of a quote from um, Martin Lloyd-Jones in in his uh, biography written by Ian Murray. And he says this, the man who is concerned most of all about his public appearance before men is never much concerned about his private attitude before God. Or Robert Murray McShane says the same in simpler terms. He says, it's the mark of the hypocrite to be a Christian everywhere but home. So, so, so what that would be evidence to you. Now, that we all have a level of dichotomy in our souls. How much of it's confessed? How much of it's recognized? But that would be an indicator, or can be an indicator, of self-righteousness. Another one would be self-righteousness is evident in our lives as we tend to minimize our sins but maximize the sins of others. So when we do look at our sins, we look at them, but we explain them. We, We kind of excuse them. We see that their impact and their footprint's rather small. But when someone else sins then it seems to be more egregious. It seems more premeditated. The impact seems more significant. In fact, sometimes we can, we can see the other sins so well that we actually become blind to our own sins. We actually don't even see them anymore. Hard to believe, but like we have David as an example. You know, when King David, of course, had committed adultery with Bathsheba and had her husband killed, then Nathan the prophet comes to David and says, I have a parable for you. There's Two men, one rich, one poor, and the one poor man had a, he just had one little lamb, and that rich man had a whole flocks of lambs, but when he went to throw a party for a friend, he got, took the one man's lamb, sacrificed it for the friend. And David flies into a rage. He says, that man deserves to die. And of course he hears then, but you're the man. How can he be so blind? Don't, please don't assume that we're above David in this. You know, there's that sense of, of an ability to see the sins of others. Don't we do it in our marriages? I mean, when we complain about conflict within our marriages, don't we usually start with what our spouse has done? I mean, don't we tend to look at this is, if she were just different in this area, then I think it'd be a whole ton better. And, and, and we, we look at siblings. You know, when they bring a fight to you, 
which one of your children comes confessing their own sins first? I mean, would you not just fall down? I mean, you'd probably fall down in worship, or you'd fall down pinching yourself thinking, I think I've just got to heaven. I mean, you, you would be shocked. But we tend to do that. You know, John Stott, this just a, a great, clear British scholar, passed away a number of years back. But he writes this, he says, We are often harsh in our judgment of others and lenient on ourselves. We work into a self-righteousness, indignation over the disgraceful behavior of other people. Well, the very same nature seems not nearly so serious when it's ours. So that, that would be an indication that we're struggling with hypocrisy, self-righteousness. Another one would be just a very critical spirit. That, that we, we're constantly looking down that ethical scale at those who sin worse than we do. This is what some people call kind of the favorite indoor sport of the Christian. As we look down at how they live, how they, how they school their children, how they, how, what media they watch, what movies, how they conduct themselves, how they spend their money. And we have this constant assessment of people, whatever category is important to you, and you judge them by those behaviors. But usually you choose the people that are beneath you. This critical spirit where we tend to write people off. That's just the way they are. Not going to change. That would be an indication of a degree of, of that kind of self righteousness over. Let me give you one more, if I haven't given you enough. Uh, one, one more would be when we, there's self righteousness or hypocrisy evidenced when we assign motives to the behavior of other people. So it's one thing to see an act and evaluate it. It's another thing to see an act, evaluate it, and then determine why they did the act. So it's not that they just hurt me. They hurt me because they're trying to get back at me. Or, or they did this because they don't like me. And you begin to attribute motives to people's actions. And that's a dangerous role, because it's one thing to assess an action. It's another thing to assess a motive. Because now you're stepping into the place of God who weighs the motives of people. We cannot, we have trouble discerning our own motives, often how mixed they are. So these are just ways, do you see hypocrisy or self-righteousness in your soul towards others? If you were to take this afternoon, maybe just take square off 15 minutes, maybe 30, and sit with your spouse or call up a good friend and just say to them, where do you see pockets of hypocrisy in my life? Where do you see me speaking this but doing this? And, and, and it's, it's for the purposes of, of betterment. It's for the purposes of confession. It isn't just to assail the other. Or, or better yet, ask one of your children. If they're old enough to discern the difference, ask your children where they see these pockets of, of hypocrisy or self-righteous indignation in you. Now remember, Paul's speaking to the church here at Rome, but remember, Paul's speaking kind of to society at large. He's speaking to the, to the one in chapter 1, you know, 18 through 32. He's talking to the one that wants to live in personal autonomy. They're going to do what they want to do because they want to do it. I think in chapter, and they're going to incur the wrath of God. In chapter 2, I think he's speaking about those who are moralists. They're religionists. 
They're people that, you know, they're the older brother types of us, right? They're those that feel better doing the rules that have been given to us. We may not be anywhere closer to God than anyone else, but at least we feel better about doing those rules. So, so Paul's not looking to pin the Roman church to the wall here, but he's showing us a picture of the world that has rejected God. We're going to try to find happiness through personal autonomy and hedonism, or we're going to try to find happiness through rule-keeping and moralism. Both, he says, find the wrath of God. And that's the second part here. Is once he's exposed self-righteousness in us, he says, it will be judged by God. That's the warning. He shoots across the bow of our ship. It will be judged unequivocally. Look at verse 2, how he says, he says, we know that the judgment of God rightly falls on, who, on those who practice these things. We know it. We know it intuitively. He said that in the last chapter. We know that God will judge the self-righteous, and yet we continue to walk in it. I mean, get this. He will judge the self-righteous religionist to the same degree he'll judge the self-pleasured hedonist. They're both going to be under the wrath of God. And his judgment is going to be right. <clears throat> that means it's going to be according to truth that God will judge rightly. Now the problem, and, and this is the, the struggle for the moralist or the religionist or the self-righteous, is we just think that we're going to somehow escape out of it. But look at me. I'm just better than these other people who are the hedonists. I'm just better. I'm more moral. I pay my taxes. I go to church. And, and, and you know this is the problem with the Jews. And this is why Paul, many people feel that chapter 2, Paul shifts to speaking just to the Jewish audience. Now, he does reference the Jews in 17, chapter 2, 17. He definitely will. Is he speaking to Jews here? I think he probably is, because he talks about them being recipients of grace. But I think he's speaking not just to the Jew, He's speaking to the moralists. You know, Rome, Rome had moralists. Everybody in Rome was not fully embracing the sinful culture that they had. There were people that were writing against idolatry and immorality, adultery. So I think speaking to all of us, and he's saying here, these Jews thought that they had favor with God, so of course they wouldn't come under judgment. In fact, a common tradition taught was that Abraham would sit at the gate of hell to make sure that no Israelite went in there, regardless of his deeds. They felt they had this divine favor, as if they're not going to come under the wrath of God. And that's why Paul says there in verse 3, he says, Do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who practice such things, yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? And we risk judgment to think that somehow... We're going to avert God's judgment because of our morality. I mean, he judges the hypocrite just like he will judge the homosexual. I mean, but isn't it funny? We just think, well, no, 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 that's not for me. And you talk to a person on the street, that's not for me. I, I mean, I, I'm, I'm not that bad of a person. And they then go into a, list, a litany of what they haven't, I haven't killed anybody, I haven't raped anybody, I haven't committed adultery. No, 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 I, I wouldn't come under that kind of judgment. In fact, John Stott has one more word for us in this. He says, we expose ourselves to God's judgment and leaves, leave ourselves without excuse or escape. For if our critical faculties are so developed 
that we become experts in our moral evaluation of others, we can hardly plead ignorance of moral issues ourselves. In other words, what he's saying is our own judgment of other people, that becomes the fodder by which evidence is presented at our own trial. Right, so Francis Schaeffer was a theologian of the last century, and he said every single person born is born like this. They're born with a recorder that God hangs around their neck, and this recorder records every moral judgment. Just think about it. If every moral judgment you have ever made was recorded on that recorder, every time you said, they shouldn't be doing that, they shouldn't do that, they shouldn't have done that to me, you should have done that, you should have done that. Every moral judgment you ever made was in that recorder. And then you stand before God. You say, God, look at all I've done. I mean, I, I, I haven't, maybe I haven't, heard, I don't know Jesus as well as other people. And you, may, you start making excuses as to why you should have. And he, pluses, he presses play on that recorder. And it just comes pouring out. You know the law. You know what God expected. And yet you didn't do it. You judged others by it, but you didn't do it yourself. You didn't confess your own sin. You just saw it in others. Will you escape judgment? That's what Paul's arguing. The judgment of God is certain. But, but the good news is that the judgment of God is kind in the delay. That God is kind in his delay. Notice what it says in verse 4. Do you presume upon the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? Now listen to what he's saying here. Paul's saying this. Paul is reminding us of the nature of God's goodness. He's kind to us. That word for kindness means he gives us things. He's gracious to us. I mean, he gives you life. He gives you breath. He gives you grace to accomplish things. He gives you gifts to do things. His forbearance, it means that he's slow to anger. His patience, it means that he's longing for us to repent. In other words, you look at these three terms as kind of overlapping, and it's showing that God is delaying judgment because of his kindness. Now, a lot of times we misconstrue the kindness of God, and, and, and we, we look at it as a, it kind of leads us into just walking in sin casually, or it leads us into a lull over his judgment, and we just don't think about it. And Paul's warning us, don't misuse, don't misconstrue his kindness. You know, many times if, if your health is strong and you have a good, secure future, and you've saved up money, you feel financially secure, and, and we can take that and think, well, God really is happy with me. I, I mean, he's really rewarding me for my spiritual performances. Do not misconstrue his kindness that way. He's kind on the just and the unjust, he says. That God's kindness has the intent to show us his goodness so that we're led to him in repentance of our sins. God's kind to us so that we don't fear coming to him, but we run to him, confessing our sins, longing to be with him. And yet we take his kindness as kind of payback for all that we've done for him. We risk judgment when we fail to see the nature of his kindness as leading us to himself. So, so Paul warns us the certainty of judgment and yet the kindness in delay. We also risk judgment when we minimize our sins as opposed to the sins of others. Again, the big ticket item sins. We don't do those. And remember now, Paul's speaking to the moral section of society. 
They don't walk in the big ticket sins. And so they begin to think, well, my little bit of gossip, a little bit of lust, a little bit of anger, a little bit of malice, a little bit of slander, a little bit of haughtiness, surely it's not that big a deal. I'm not committing those grosser sexual sins that we can so easily point a finger to across the aisle on the other side of society. C.S. Lewis has a, a very good word for us on this. He says, if anyone thinks Christians regard unchastity as the supreme vice, he is quite wrong. The sins of the flesh are bad, but they are the least bad of all sins. All the worst pleasures are purely spiritual, the pleasure of putting other people in the wrong, of bossing and patronizing, backbiting, the pleasures of power, of hatred. For there are two things inside me competing with the human self, which I must try to overcome. They are the animal self and the diabolical self. The diabolical self is the worst of the two. That's why a cold, self-righteous prig who goes regularly to church may be nearer to hell than a prostitute. And it's a sobering word. It, it kind of busts through the thin veil of what sins really receive the wrath of God and what sins don't. Now remember, I'm not saying that Every person in church is guilty of this. Paul's talking about society now, a society that has rejected the clear witness of God. And, and, and they, last week, they go into personal autonomy and sexual satisfaction and the like. This week, he's speaking to those on the moral side of the house, the self-righteous side of the house. So this is one of these things where we have to kind of Walk in it and see if it fits or not. That's why I gave you those questions at the beginning. So in the first, in verse 1, he's simply telling us, he's exposing for us the nature of self-righteousness. In verses 2 through 4, he's speaking to us about that it will receive the judgment of God. He says, do you think you'll escape judgment? So now we're kind of, we should be all in a corner right now. We should all be feeling like, wow, this is like, damning of everyone. And that's why we love verse 5, because 5, he begins to lead us out of the corner. He's going to show us that the confession of our self-righteousness leads to forgiveness and redemption. Look what he says in verse 5. He says, But because of your hard and unpenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath, when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. Now, I'm taking this warning, and I'm going to draw a way out through the understanding of the warning. In other words, the criteria of God's judgment is a hard and impenitent heart. Now, the, the word for heart is our, the word we get for sclerosis, kind of the hardening of the arteries you'll hear as you get older and doctors warn of the hardening of the arteries. Well, well, Paul's kind of using this word to show the hardening of our soul that we become hard to God. In other words, we take his kindnesses more and more, and we don't see them as leading us to repentance, leading us away from sin, and we just take them as our own due, that they're due to us. That's the hardening of the heart, that we don't see the brokenness in our own souls, that we continue to have kind of a laser vision on the faults of those around us, but we, we don't practice self-confession and self-confrontation. And so Paul says it's the hard and the impenitent heart 
that is storing up for themselves. And the idea of storing up is a continuous. There's, a, there's an increasing accountability as your years increase because God's kindness has been increasing to you. And, and so there's a warning here. That, by the way, the storing up idea, the storing up idea kind of goes along with, you know, back in Matthew chapter 6 where Jesus says that you ought to store up for yourselves treasures in heaven. Well, that's, a, that's, a, that's a nice thought to have. This is, Paul's using it in an ironical sense, in the sense, no, you're storing up wrath. You're storing up anger. You're storing up God's judgment for yourself when you continue to harden yourself to God's kindness, which is to lead you to repentance, not judgment of others. As one author said, it's like a dam that's built along a river, and, and, and the waters just keep piling up. Day after day after day, the waters keep piling up and the dam just is holding back the water and the water is increasing. If and when that dam breaks, the destruction's enormous. Or James Boyce gave an illustration this way. He says, you know, the, the man or the woman who hardens his heart to the kindnesses of God, that he's not led to repentance. He lives in his moralistic and his self-righteous world. Uh, that he's like the miser that keeps saving gold coins and he keeps... He keeps hiding them in the attic of his home over his bedroom. And he just keeps piling them up for safekeeping. Just taking the mercies and the kindnesses of God. Never using them for what God intends to lead us to repentance. And just keeps piling them up. And one day the weight of those gold coins is too much. It breaks through the ceiling and crushes them. All those kindnesses. That's kind of this idea of storing up the wrath of God. So, So what do we do here? Well, first, I would say this to you. you know, we've looked at the self-righteousness exposed, self-righteousness judged. The self-righteousness needs to be confessed. You know, that's the way out of the wrath of God, that we confess to God. First, we, we take our own soul to task. We, we consider our own soul. Would you join with me in being wary of your own souls? What I mean by that is don't perceive, don't don't. Don't attribute truth to the way you feel about a situation. You might be wrong. The way you perceive something, you might be wrong. Too many times I think we perceive or feel something and boom, it's baptized with gospel truth and it's just the way it is. Well, take your own soul to task. You know, sin is, is, is a deceitful thing to try to harden your soul to see your own sin. It, it, it looks to avoid self-confrontation. It looks to avoid you taking your soul to task and saying, where is sin resident with me? I'm quick looking at others. I can identify it with, with razor-sharp focus in others, but I don't see it myself. John Owen, a great English theologian in the 17th century, said this. He says, take heed, use all means, consider temptations, watch diligently, There is a treachery, a deceit and sin that tends to the hardening of your hearts from the fear of God. Is it not enough to make any heart tremble, to think of being brought into the estate where you have slight thought of sin, slight thought of grace or mercy, the law, heaven and hell? It says, take heed that your lust is working toward the hardening of the heart, the searing of the conscience, the blinding of the mind, the stupefying of the affections, and the deceiving of the whole soul. That's what sin does. This is why we need one another in a church. We need to have a brother or sister speaking to me in my life and I in theirs. 
That's why he says in Hebrews 3.13 to, to exhort one another every day so that sin's deceitfulness doesn't harden your heart. Do you have that friend? Do you have a care group that you can speak that way too? That people have entry into your life and you and theirs. Because otherwise, we just move to moralism so casually and so easily. So first, consider your own sin. Then secondly, confess your hypocrisy. Confess your moralism. Confess your religion. In other words, confess the fact that you don't see the nature of your sin. Confess the fact that you do see the sins of others as more egregious than your own. Confess the imbalances that are in your life. Confess the fact that you may have a critical spirit, always able to weigh people based upon the behavior that you're holding them against. Confess the fact that you may often tend to imply motives to people and thereby be the judge and the jury and the prosecuting attorney. So confess these things because self-righteousness will never draw you to God. Remember the nature of the gospel in chapter 117. He says that the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. It's faith. It isn't your morality. It isn't how many rungs up the ladder you've walked in terms of holiness. I would encourage you to be holy as God is holy. But our hope in the gospel never rests on our achievement of spiritual progress, but on Christ's work through and through. It's the righteousness of Christ that saves you on the first day, and it will be saving you on the last day. So if you're not a Christian here, becoming a Christian begins with confession of sin before God and faith in Jesus Christ. But if you are a Christian, we still confess. We still need the gospel. We still need to return to the gospel is the power of God that saves. Yes, I believe it. And that's why we often say, preach the gospel to yourself every day. Confess your sins. Repentance, as one scholar says, is like taking the garbage out. You take it out all the time. You don't take it out once, and then you go on living your life. And then the third thing I would say to you is consider or at least contemplate the judgment of God. I don't want you to be in fear over the judgment. The Christian passes out of judgment because Christ has been judged. But it's a good thing to contemplate the reality that the wrath of God will come one day. And the reason it's helpful to contemplate judgment is because it makes today very important. It moves us to not want to push off till tomorrow what we ought to be doing today in terms of our lives. Considering the judgment softens your heart. Considering the judgment of God puts you on notice that God is holy and righteous, and it helps us to live in ways that are more in accordance with his word. We need that help. I need that help. And when you consider the judgment of God, you are drawn back to the gospel, and you're reminded of his mercy, the delay. And then that really leads us to the fourth thing. The fourth thing is that you would celebrate his kindness to you. You know, God has been kindness. God has been very, very kind to us. You know, I, I think about the, the kindness just in his preventing natural consequences from meeting themselves out to me and my stupidity in much of my life. The things that I did that should have killed me are, are more numerous than I'd like to admit. And God's kindness was there. And I know in your life, where the natural consequences of some of the decisions that you made did not have their full weight in your life. That was God's kindness. Have you celebrated him for that? He preserved your life and then drew you to himself after those things. 
or, or celebrating God's kindness and opening. How did you come to see Christ? If you're a Christian, how were your eyes opened to the nature of your sin and his goodness? How did it happen in your life? Celebrate that. I mean, I, I've pointed out probably two dozen times to you on how John Newton, even at the end of his life, was remarking of how God saved him. Even put it on his tombstone, never forgetting that kindness of God in saving him. Or the kindnesses of God in wakening your soul up to truths just along the Christian way. So celebrate his kindness, particularly the kindness in giving to us Christ. You know, all of chapter 1, at least from verse 18 on, and all of chapter 2, and all of chapter 3, we're going to be screaming for 321 that a righteousness of God has now been revealed apart from works of the law but it's in the Son that he's given to us. So this is a good word for the, for the church. It's a good word for the church because we can tend to be the fortress of those who are most moral and most self-righteous. And so it's a good warning for us, not that judgment waits around the corner for us, because you're going to consider your own soul. You're going to confess your sin. You're going to consider the judgment of God. You're going to celebrate his kindness and thereby we, we move from judgment into life. But for the, for the non-Christian here, this, even though you may be moral, even though you may be religious, this judgment is a reality. God does what he says. And he says clearly, we know that the judgment of God will rightly fall. So may we be a church that would be humble, and that our humility wouldn't be false, but it would be generated by the truth of who we are before God, that we would walk with right judgment, with a compassionate judgment, with a merciful judgment, knowing that we too are sinners. In fact, our judgment is birthed out of love, that we don't want them to walk in a measure and in a manner that will bring harm to them, or even a... Even a a distaste in them for God. You know, as we make ourselves comfortable in sin, God just seems to just recede from our lives. He's not leaving, we're leaving. So let's take a minute now and just consider the nature of this self-righteousness. And again, we pray that, you know, every Sunday morning we pray that this time right now following the sermon, that if you're weak, I'm praying that God would strengthen you. If you're brokenhearted, I'm praying that God will lift you up and help you. I'm praying that if you're idle, that he will admonish you and convict you. And then I'll close this in prayer in just a minute.